Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, here with a new mini-sode in a new year with my ever-lovely co-host, Carrie Plitt. Hi, Carrie, how are you doing? I am ever-lovely. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, I'm well. It's, you know, it's January. Yeah, it sucks. I haven't made any resolutions, as you know. I had a long break. I'm ready to be back. Very happy to be back here with you in the studio. Oh, me too. Me too. It's making my January better, actually. I hate January. <laughs> Mini-sode 10, 2020. It feels auspicious somehow, don't you mm-hmm, think? Definitely. Whether you're new to the show or an old hand, welcome and thanks for listening. The format of these mini-sodes between full shows is for the next half hour, we will first have an informal conversation about something book-related and anything else that might come up and then recommend some other cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes by Eddie. That's right. We've got some really exciting stuff lined up for this year, including a brilliant announcement about sponsorship. Um, you may have seen our announcement on social media, but we've joined forces with Picador, who are uh, publishers, who've come on board as our first official sponsor. So you'll be hearing occasional messages from them throughout our programming. Um, and they're just they're helping support us so we can make the show even bigger and better. So, yeah, big thanks, Picador. We love you. Super exciting. And... Uh, I know you've heard a lot from us about this, but I just want to say that there are a few of our totes left on our Etsy shop and they are running low. So if you want to be in the LF gang, which counts Sadie Smith as a member, just saying we gave her one and she said she needed a tote. She was probably just being nice, but that's fine. And help us out with a little financial support. Then you can find a link in the description of this show. You can indeed. Um, and I also want to say a huge thank you to everyone who emailed with suggestions of books to read in French and Spanish. It was so lovely to see your suggestions. And um, I will look forward to reading through them probably very, very slowly with my dictionary on hand. But yeah, I mean, I've got this whole now other pile of to read um, ideas. It's fabulous. Yeah, we love hearing from you. Muchas so thank gracias. you. <laughs> Oh my god, so cringy. (laughs) (laughs) Merci beaucoup. (laughs) Oh my god, do it again. (laughs) Okay, we also got some really nice messages saying hi and lovely supportive things over the holidays, which was very uplifting. So thank you to everyone for getting in touch. But for now, back to the mini-sode. I'm really excited to talk to you about this, and I think it's partially because I haven't really made up my mind. So um, there might be some thinking out loud. Mm -hmm. But we are going to be talking about a theme which has been inspired by T.S. Eliot and the publication of his letters to Emily Hale earlier this month. So we'll be thinking about literary fetishism and dealing with disappointing revelations about great male writers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have some feelings. We do have some feelings, don't we? <laughs> yeah. This episode is sponsored by Picador, who have been publishing some brilliant short story collections lately, and they have more planned for the next year. We talked on the last show about there being a bit of a resurgence of the form lately, but do you think the short story was ever really at risk of disappearing, Octavia? Definitely not. No way. <laughs> Leading I, question there, maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly. But no, I think there's something about the form that will always endure, partly because people love to be able to read something in one go, and I don't think that should ever be underestimated, but also partly because it's a form that allows writers to really experiment with style. Um, so I don't think writers are ever in danger of stopping making them. And it's also a form that writers... It's kind of a writer's form, if that makes sense. So you're always going to have a market for short stories among writers, if not among the wider public. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's it you can do more in some ways because you can take risks that you couldn't in a novel. Right. 
Ted Chiang is someone who definitely fits that category. He writes sci-fi, speculative fiction. And Pegador published his latest collection, Exhalation, which made it onto Barack Obama's 2019 summer reading list. I mean, if the short story's got Obama in its corner, I think the form is going to survive just fine. Yes. <laughs> and he also wrote the story that inspired one of my favorite movies. Arrival. Yes. That's Such what it's a called. great film. I yeah. know. Incredible. Well, I also actually bought Exhalation for my boyfriend for Christmas, and I'm looking forward to pinching it from him. Um, but also this year, Picador publishing another short story collection called Alligator and Other Stories, which is a debut collection from a Syrian-American author called Dima Al-Zayat that explores the many ways of feeling displaced and what it means to be other, um, which sounds really interesting. I'm going to keep my eyes out for it. It really does. Also, both of these collections are released in audiobook by Picador, so you can listen on the go. We love audiobooks. We do. Hello, welcome back to Literary Friction, Minisode 10. Carrie Plitt and I are back, ready to wade into the gossipy world of T.S. Eliot's love life. T.S. Eliot, which is actually basically toilets backwards, just FYI. Um, a swampy place from oh which we God. can... Oh my God. Did you not know? <laughs> no. Did you know? <laughs> I knew because when I like moved to Margate... in English schools or something? No, no man. No. Okay. When I moved to Margate, there was an exhibition about the wasteland on and they had a lot of word plays about toilets and okay. it was great. Great. Anyway, we're going to be knee deep, thigh deep, maybe even armpit deep in the swamp of of this whole experience. Sounds weirdly sexy. I know, I I didn't mean it No, 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 it's good. (laughs) Thigh deep is a weird... Thigh deep in the swamp of T.S. Eliot's torrid love life. (laughs) Carrie and I reporting. (laughs) (laughs) She can't handle it. Um, Anyway, where we can think more widely about literary letters, posthumous publications, and how they can change about how we might think about an artist and their work. But before we start, I'm going to give you a quick summary in case you've not followed the story. Thomas Stearns Eliot, English poet, essayist, publisher, etc. I think he was also a banker, so, you know. um, Famous for The Wasteland and the poems that Andrew Lloyd Webber turned into the musical Cats, which is another reason why his name is pretty live right now, because it's just been turned into a film, which I'm sure you've heard um, is making critics have kittens. But that's a whole other minisode. So let's put that on the back burner. I just would like to say I'm desperate to see Cats. I'm desperate to see it too. Should so is John. Together? Oh my God, let's go. But I, I looked the other day and it was only playing at like 3.30 on a Wednesday. <laughs> so I'd <laughs> oh have to God. literally take off work. But anyway, yes, let's let's make that outing yeah. happen. That would make me really happy. Anyway, T.S. Eliot, he died in 1965. He was married twice. And this whole deal is about the release of over 1,000 letters he wrote to a woman called Emily Hale, who was neither of his wives. In a nutshell, the story goes, they met at university. He was into her. She turned him down. Several years later, when his desperately unhappy first marriage was faltering, he started writing to her. And it began a 17-year correspondence that was very passionate. And I can't help but think of that first letter as the equivalent of a text message saying, hey, you up? (laughs) Very good. Hey. <laughs> uh, anyway, I do, but I do, I do a little bit because obviously reading back about it from this position of, of knowledge, you see things differently. But anyway, Hale ultimately gave Eliot's letters to her to Princeton University's library in 1956. And she said they were only to be published 50 years after, I think, the death of both of them. He was very grumpy when he heard she'd given them to a library and he wrote his own account of their relationship, which was meant to be released alongside the release of the letters. So having his last word and then he had her letters to him burned so you know nice Ugh. nice move there buddy and in thomas i know in the statement he admits that he liked to think that their correspondence would be made public after both of their deaths 
But then he was pissed off that she gave them to the library while they were both still alive. And so he burned her side of the story is, is how it seems. Again, disappointing, Thomas. It also shows quite how far he disappears up the own wazoo of his own self-mythology. And there's this one line from the statement that keeps doing the rounds on Twitter in my head uh, where he says, Emily Hale would have killed the poet in me as his justification for why he never pursued the relationship that seemed to be brewing throughout this passionate correspondence. Then there's also, I mean, a couple of other choice things, just extraordinary snobbery where he says how she didn't love poetry. And then he goes on to say, well, she didn't particularly like his poetry. So, you know, there's a, a whole kind of wounded ego thing going on. Anyway, the letters themselves aren't published online. You would have to go to Princeton Library to read them, which plenty of people have been queuing up to do with their gloves on and their, you know, prurient desire to understand. Um, the fact that the whole thing was billed as a massive literary unveiling actually made me really uncomfortable. I find there's something a bit gross about that kind of prurience and the way it can be dressed up as academic interest. Like, mm. just be honest. It's totally fine to want to know. But when it's dressed up in the white gloves and the like kind of uh, high thinking of the academy, it really bothers me. Basically, let's get into it. What do you think? Are you interested in this kind of stuff? Do you read the letters of writers? I mean, the other thing that has come up a lot in the general discussion about this is Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath mm. and the letters that he... Yeah, and Robert Lowell as well. And Yeah, exactly. Some more essentially literary fuckboys who did yeah. bad things to women. Let's be real. There's so much at play here, isn't there? I mean, first of all, I do I do I read the letters of writers? I don't. I don't go through the selected correspondence of the writers that I really admire. And honestly, until very recently, didn't really read biographies or anything like that, although I've started getting more into them. In terms of whether it's I age, think... babe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same here. Birds, Birds and biographies. I know. Gardens. <laughs> yeah, Welcome yeah. to your thirties. Um <laughs> I don't know. I I maybe feel a little bit less gross about it than you do um, because I, I feel that a work can stand alone, but I also feel that the life of a writer is something that is fair game, first of all, and second of all, is something that helps us to understand our... I like the idea that we can look at the biographical details and the other writings of someone and get an insight into the the circumstances of their time and of their mind that led them to create things and i think it it opens up how we think about creation and and also i think gives a historical context to work that is really important especially now that we're sort of in a time when we're re-excavating the personal lives of a, a lot of artists and writers and thinkers and, and thinking about how some of the prejudices of their time, but also of their hearts, could have influenced their work in a way that it's really worth thinking about. I think it's important to know these things. I, I'm not against that at all. I, I agree with you, frankly. I think the thing that bothers me is the dishonesty that some people couch their interest in, you know, and, and um, the idea that the way some of the news reports were about this archive of letters being uncovered was like, you know, people had been waiting for the last, there's been a countdown, you know, for the last five years. When can we get our hands on them? Which just felt gross to me. And it, yeah, felt, yeah. Um, it felt gross towards Emily Hale, frankly. You know, I think that there is a structural imbalance going, running the whole way through this particular example that has not necessarily been righted in the way that people are responding to it. But I, I do agree with you that, yes, learning about the context. And I think I feel particularly sad about this because The Wasteland is one of my favourite poems. And I'm not surprised 
that T.S. Eliot has, comes across the way he comes across in this whole deal. But I am disappointed. I'm just disappointed, you know? I am. Just to, to find another kind of great masculine writer whose ego is so big and whose romantic choices basically seem to have been driven by his own desire for self-mythology um, and who doesn't give a fuck how many women he sacrifices on the altar of his own creative genius. It, it's so gross. It is so gross. So maybe that's what I'm, I'm kind of responding to. But I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, what do we do with that information? Like, should I reevaluate how I experience the wasteland and what it means to me? Like, for example, what do you think? I think this is a question we're all asking ourselves right now. And I really don't know that I have an answer. It gets trickier when we evaluate art based upon the perceived moral goodness of the person who created it. It's really difficult. And I and and I don't know. I thought Wesley Morris wrote a really good article about this in the New York Times magazine called Should Art Be a Battleground for Morality? I think uh in 2018 and I would really recommend reading that I don't know that he has any answers as well but he at least diagnoses a real cultural shift that we've gone through recently where we are starting to think about the decisions that creators make and whether that changes how we look at the art and how we think the art is and um, how the art the looks place. back at us yes. basically right? yeah yeah um that sounds really interesting I do feel a little bit gross about consuming art by people, especially ones who are alive, who have been revealed to to be pretty despicable people. Um, Woody Allen, for instance. I, it, it's hard to think about watching Manhattan again, for instance, knowing what I know about his life, but also reevaluating some of the relationships in that movie based upon the context of the cultural conversation that's happening right now. Dead people like T.S. Eliot, um, who have revealed themselves to be misogynistic and disappointing, it's it's more difficult. And I and I think it would be okay for you to still appreciate the wasteland while also holding this other idea in your head and just being very aware of the ways that it might have changed the art. Um and I and the way that I mean the solution that I've come up with so far is first of all that it has to be an individual choice. Like we cannot tell people what they can and can't appreciate but we also have to be really 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 aware of how culture and how in the history of culture certain art has been elevated and certain art has been suppressed and how oppression has been written into our canon both in terms of which art makes it into the canon but also in terms of what that art circumscribes about justice absolutely also i think the bottom line is when looking at like dead men um the fact is that most of their art has been elevated on the shoulders of women yes <laughs> who was doing all the labor around them the emotional labor the physical labor the, the caring labor you know all of it so in some respects um it's a sliding scale isn't it and i yeah essentially most most great male writers of the past were abusing their power just structurally, inevitably, because that's what was happening across the board. And then within that, you have people who were obviously like um, Norman Mailer, actual wife beaters, and therefore obviously in the bin without even thinking about it. But then there's this ambiguous gray area. And I've had, I've definitely had quite extreme reactions to it in the past where I've been like, I'm not reading any of that shit anymore. You know, I don't want it polluting my mind. And now mm -hmm. I feel more ambiguous again about it and, and more relaxed about it in some ways, but also with such a heavy heart always. Yeah. 
Well, it's like Charles Dickens. You know? I'm not that sad about it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you loved Charles Dickens. No. Oh, Caravaggio, murderer. Yeah, disappointing. You know, you go further and further back and nobody is clean. Yeah, yeah. I also believe in forgiveness. That's what I find so mm-hmm. tricky about this. It's like, what do we forgive and what do we throw away? I don't know. Yeah, true. And I mean, the thing about the T.S. Eliot stuff, like you were saying, this this whole thing, there's so much hubris in it, right? And hubris is a very relatable human experience. And I guess if you wanted to look at it through a more forgiving lens, the whole kind of, I never liked her anyway, after feeling spurned is a very common, it's a very, I think we've probably all experienced it at some point. It's just, you would hope to have grown out of it by your late adolescence. (laughs) Yeah, well, and it's like, what is so baffling to me about this whole thing is if he had just not written that response, I know he would have you know maybe people have been like oh it's too bad that he wasn't faithful to his wife or you know it's too bad he didn't actually hold up his promise to Emily Hale but those are all pretty understandable but changing trying to change the narrative in a way that he obviously thought would make him come off in a better light but to our eyes it's just like oh my god what is this guy even doing yeah yeah yeah. it's just like fascinating to me actually totally he presents himself as a complete parody of the like the male writer obsessed with legacy and obsessed with controlling his own legacy and obsessed with notions of his own genius i mean the pomposity of of how he comes across in all of this stuff is despicable and like extraordinary and hilarious and I think you know writers are are at great risk of being pompous often in general artists maybe across the board because when you're making something and putting it out there 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 is a relationship of like self-aggrandizement within that process that is hard to avoid and I think the people who navigate it most honestly are the ones who are able to be very clear-sighted about it and Mm. I don't think T.S. Eliot was clear-sighted about a hell of a lot (laughs) (laughs) but what do you think about generally like a, a, a writer's private correspondence being made public after their death do you think that it should happen regardless of their wishes do you have opinions about it yeah, I have pretty strong opinions, which is I think everything's fair game, especially after they're dead. They're dead. Yeah. Honestly, like whatever. This extends beyond art for me. It's like when somebody is dead, why should we listen to what they wanted? <laughs> I love so, that. No, but I really no, feel no. that way. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Why, I mean, obviously, we should do the right thing. But somebody who's about to die is not necessarily more wise about that than than people who are still having to live. No, absolutely. And also what people want to be preserved of them when they're no longer around to defend themselves, like as if that's going to be very clear, like a clear vision. But also, I think, I don't know, if you if you think about it, it's not a bad principle to guide your life by in that, you know, don't do anything in life that you wouldn't want coming out after your death, period. Yeah. Like, be do good, be good where possible. Accept your limitations. Yeah, but also, but I'll also... be dead, so whatever. <laughs> so I just... Maybe Wait, I should care Carrie, more about my legacy. How many bodies are going to be dug up from your garden after you're gone? No, but I just I just feel this like thinking ahead of how you'll be remembered when you won't be there to see how you're remembered. I, I know it's a very human impulse, so I maybe I shouldn't be as baffled by it. But I just think, you know, if bad stuff comes out about me when I'm dead, I mean, I hope it won't. And I don't think there is that much. I have that many skeletons in my closet, but I'll be dead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fr- frankly, also, if your ego is so fragile that it can't cope with the thought of your, like, human pettinesses being being revealed at some point, then you need to go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. But I but I do think that is an interesting question in that how do we distinguish between what is public property and what isn't? Because I don't know if I believe that if you have a public life of some kind, it means everything is fair game. I think human beings 
need their private life in order to be okay. <laughs> and I think that you get this thing that happens, especially with artists, writers, where if somebody's craft is in a particular thing, then everything else that's also in that thing can be dug up and presented as also art. So, you know, just because someone writes books doesn't mean that their emails to their granny or their notes to themselves are also writing that they would want out in the world as proof of their writerly skill. And artists whose sketches suddenly get dug up and it's like, well, no, the artist has to have a right to choose what they present as emblematic as, of the, as work, essentially, and what is separate from work and not work. You know, maybe this is because I write myself, but I do, I feel quite strongly about that and that that is an agency. And maybe if things come out after death, fine, but just make the context of them clear. I yeah. don't know. How do you feel no, about that? No, I, I think I agree with you. Well, I think the whole Elena Ferrante being unmasked brought up a lot of these questions in the public discourse. Like, what right do we have to know who she is if she wants to remain private? Um, right. and, and I think she is entitled to her privacy. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. You know, we have a way of melding those two things together don't we and and seeing any writing produced as as part of a body of writing when when actually things are constructed for different reasons and have different registers and and different purposes and I think it's really important to distinguish between those two things I think also the way we live now though at the archival project which has become impossible we do so much writing like whatsapp threads yeah emails oh do you know what I mean yeah. like if you were okay in my let's say my most grandiose despicable fantasies that I become a very successful writer one day and after my death someone is going through like my archive of whatever all my nonsense imagine if someone published our correspondence our WhatsApp correspondence. I, I think our WhatsApp you correspondence is poetic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is. But what I mean is like, I think that the project of this nowadays, it looks very different because it's not the same as um, letters tied up in a bundle given to a library. It's yeah. a huge digital footprint texts. It's true. And I think letters were written knowing that others might read them, especially by writers. And Elliot acknowledge that himself the other thing that was kind of on my mind is I, I was like they're dead nothing matters like whatever release it all but I do think the closer you are to that death the more likely you are to have relatives children who don't necessarily need to read every piece of correspondence you've written and and I think that's why it's important to give time yeah before we dig into all of these things. I agree totally. And I think that there is an argument, this is not necessarily my argument supporting Elliot at all, but there is an argument to be said for the fact that that, um, that his coda was written with respect to his current wife. <laughs> you know, I don't know, who knows? But yes, I think that there, that is to be taken into consideration as well. And basically there's no clear answer. Would you ever want something published posthumously? Well... Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think if something wasn't good enough, I'd probably prefer that it be destroyed rather than public. I mean, posthumous works are almost always disappointing, aren't they? Yeah. And I, again, like we were saying, if the if the artist in question has chosen not to put it forward as work, there's probably a reason. Yeah. So I again, I'm I'm not I wouldn't object to it because I'm not in control um, and I and I don't think I should be in control after I've died. But if I didn't want something published, I'd probably want to get rid of it. Yeah. How about you? I feel similarly. I think, yeah, I think that's, I have a big impulse of just fuck it, don't care. But when something is dug out and, you know, someone's like, oh my God, we found this unpublished novel by whoever it is. I, I'm not ever that keen to read no. it. So, you know, I don't really mind. Whatever, go to your joy if that's what you need. But like, 
Not for me, thanks. What if you found out that after your death, I was editing and publishing a collection of your posthumous work? Babe, I would be so thrilled. With a, with a very <laughs> nice introduction. <laughs> I mean, please to do you it. as a person. I'm actually going to draw up a will soon just because I've been feeling a bit superstitious. So I'm going to leave you all my diaries. Your literary executor. Yeah, that's okay. right. <laughs> Everyone, you heard it here first. <laughs> I will edit them with love and Carrie's going to publish a posthumous collection of my WhatsApp conversations. <laughs> <laughs> lovingly edited <laughs> and redacted where necessary <laughs> get it in bookstores <laughs> only 12.99 <laughs> amazing As usual, we're back to give you recommendations of some stuff we've done or watched or listened to or eaten or whatever that isn't reading that has inspired us or stimulated us or brought us joy. So, Carrie, what has got you going over the last however long it's been? Yeah, it's been a long time and a lot of things have got me going. So I'm just going to get through this list quickly. First of all, Shit's Creek. Have you watched this? No. Okay, so I finished watching all nine seasons of The Office recently. I mean, that makes my skin crawl just even thinking about it. What that I watched all night. The seasons? Office. I can't handle it. The the American Office. N- none of it. It's not my jam. Okay, fine. You were more receptive when I recommended it before. Was I? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the oh, U.S. Office is really good. Okay. The later seasons not as good, but I felt I needed it's to, Steve Carell, to follow right? it into the end. Yeah, I yeah. quite enjoy watching yeah. it. Okay, okay. I'll be receptive again. Um, Hit me with it. But I really needed, and I the reason I watched The Office is because it makes me feel good. And that was gone from my life and I needed something to fill the hole. And Schitt's Creek is filling that hole. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That is such a filthy image. Yeah. Well, it's a very, it's a very non-filthy. Actually, it's a little bit filthy. But anyway, it's, it's a really great show. It's about this Canadian family. Um, They're very wealthy. They lose all their money. The only thing that they still own is this town called Schitt's Creek that the father had bought the son as a joke. Um, And so they have to move there. And it sort of it goes from there. The first season is a little bit mean spirited and you kind of have to get through it. But I decided to do that because so many people had told me to watch the show. And I am so glad I did because it is just a delight. You know, it's funny and warm and it's great ensemble cast and it is worth it Catherine O'Hara is the mother she's fucking fab it is worth it for her accent alone you know it's just (laughs) incredible and the dad from American Pie is the Eugene Levy is the father and he wrote it with his son who plays his son it's just great and I'm loving it and I'm so happy (laughs) (laughs) the next one Knives Out another thing that I just felt I needed in my life I'm desperate Um, to see that it's so good I mean it's it feels like a sort of confession it's not like it hasn't like moved me deep in my soul but it's a really great old-fashioned murder mystery that also feels really contemporary I didn't guess where the the story was going Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic as always but all of the actors in it are great Lakeith Stanfield's like um Chris one of the Chris's Chris Evans (laughs) in a cable net sweater who's just yeah he's perfect so it's great (laughs) watch it watch it I just saw Uncut Gems. I'm going to see that on Saturday. I'm so interested to hear what you think. Okay. I think it divides opinion, but I think I loved it. It's (laughs) a very stressful movie, but it is... I can't stop thinking about it. I, I really can't stop thinking about it. And I think it's incredibly well done. And the acting is 
feels so essential and the soundtrack is amazing and the rhythm of it and it feels both inspired by a lot of those sort of like 70s gritty New York films like Taxi Driver but also feels very of the moment and it's about basketball and and the Diamond District and it's so specific while also being really universal and I just I really loved it I'm going to see it with my mum and my aunt so we'll see dream team okay and two more crossword puzzles into them now they're great they are great (laughs) and uh what was the last one oh going to see dance yeah babe I went to go see the the red shoes last night and I was like dancing is like one of those art forms that I know the least about and maybe I'm all the more baffled by it I'm like how do they move their bodies in that way it's just amazing it's so inspiring I was so transported and their bodies are amazing yeah Okay, that's yeah. all. No, I know. <laughs> the, the bodies are beautiful. Yeah, tell, tell me, what do you have to recommend? Well, I, so I had horrendous flu over Christmas and it was really desperate and terrible. But one thing rescued me and that was rewatching Erin Brockovich. Oh. The outfits, <laughs> the optimism. Speaking of bodies. Julia Roberts. Yeah, just, sorry, that's really per- dirty today. <laughs> uh, it's just, it is such a great movie in all ways. And it made me think about how... I feel like that tone of film was really of the 90s and the early 2000s and it's not really happening anymore. These kind of optimistic but like quite real in their other ways. Like Hollywood does reality kind of thing. I don't know. It also really got me thinking actually about the way internalized misogyny worms its way into fashion and how we choose what we wear, which is not a new thought by any stretch of the imagination, but just having it... um, kind of so clearly presented and the way that her hyper femininity and her refusal to adopt the uniform of like a serious professional woman um, was a reminder that actually feminism doesn't have to be punitive and the whole uh, you know social uniforms develop because we're always reading one another and looking for cues and um, and tells of who we are and what we're like but the uniform of the intellectual woman is really boring these days, actually. Mm. Like smock dresses, you know, go to your joy if that's what you need. But there is a whole wardrobe of sheer shirts and miniskirts waiting for you, should you need permission. Thank you. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I mean, I've definitely been wearing more miniskirts since watching the, the movie. So yeah, I'm now on the lookout for some sexy belts and I bought some new cowboy boots. I really went, I really went for it. <laughs> it came to me in a fever dream and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Then uh, a podcast that I really enjoyed was called The Missing Crypto Queen, and it's a podcast on BBC Sounds. It's a really brilliant piece of investigative journalism, and also the story is just completely insane. Uh, It's about a cryptocurrency called OneCoin and its enigmatic figurehead, Dr. Ruja, who's currently missing. And she's essentially a self-styled cult leader whose mission is supposedly to create a new economic reality for the entire world with her cryptocurrency. But also the cryptocurrency is actually a dead end, so it's Essentially, she is the fairy at the top of the world's biggest, most destructive pyramid scheme. Um, It's fascinating. It's nuts. I find the presenter quite irritating, but it's worth persevering because uh, he's a great journalist. I just Mm. don't really like his his jam. But the story is mesmerizing. Sounds Um, great. Yeah, it is. It's really good. Just get over the hump with him and then you'll be fine. And then my last thing is actually, it is a book, but it's a cookbook um, because I've been trying to get back into cooking and... It's The Roasting Tin by Rick Minier. Oh, uh, Eddie bought me the green roasting tin. That's for the Christmas. one I have. Yeah. yeah, it's great. It's really great. And it's it's a really good, 
I like lost my groove with cooking ages ago and haven't been trying or and I've lost confidence a bit and just can't be bothered most of the time. And I'm trying to get better and be more mindful in all these ways. And actually, as a lazy cook or an unconfident cook, everything going in one tin is really like liberating and the food is delicious and it's easy to make it in big batches and I know this is very boring I feel but essentially like reconnecting with the pleasure of making food and knowing where it comes from and being a more kind of ethical consumer in that way has been bringing me joy I don't think that's boring oh, and I and I second that recommendation we've really been enjoying cooking for yeah that. it's great there's one thing with uh roast potatoes and artichokes with spring greens and baked eggs it's basically a brilliant way of using up what's in your fridge if you are a bougie person who has jars of artichokes in your fridge but you know beyond that i would maybe listen to an audiobook of you just reading out the different recipes (laughs) hire me (laughs) i am available That's all the time we have for today. Big thanks to Rory Bowens at NTS and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We'll be back in two weeks. And until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.